0: I'm Greg Johnson,
1: welcome to Countercurrents Radio. My guest today is Vox Day. Vox, welcome back.
0: Thanks. It's a bit of a surprise to be back already, but then again, it was a bit of a surprise to get a second book out so quick.
1: Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh it was back in September that I reviewed your last book SJW's Always Lie and we recorded an interview after that, and it is amazing that we're doing this again. Uh and I feel kind of uh kind of ashamed at how how much more quickly you bring out these these really excellent books uh so the new volume is called conservative how quote unquote conservatives betrayed america it's co-authored with John Red Eagle and before we go into the interview i'm just going to give everyone out there listening some marching orders i want you to pause this broadcast for a second Go to Amazon.com, go to the Kindle store, and buy a copy of Cuxervative, because I know you'll like it, and I want you to get started right away. So, we'll wait. Okay, we're back. So, Vox, um, let's talk about this new book, Cuxervative. I was really honored to find out that the first interview that we did, the transcript of that, uh, appears as an appendix to the book, and... I understand that you have a co-author, and since, in effect, you're going to be speaking for him, too, can you tell us a little bit about your co-author, John Red Eagle? Who is he?
0: He is someone who is a, I guess you could say he was a fan of mine. We got to know each other a bit through the blog, and, you know, it was, the fact that we both happened to be of American Indian descent was something that we happened to have in common, you know, so, uh, was, you know, it was just Something that we'd chatted a bit about. We're from different tribes, different parts of the USA, but you know he is a very libertarian, and so you know he's he's done some other writing as well, and so we started talking, um, talking about it, and this was right when the whole sort of conservative thing started. So it was around the time, not very long after uh, SJWs had come out. And we were talking and I said, you know, we, we really should do a book on this. And he said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. And, you know, I'm in the middle of writing the second volume in my uh, Arts of Dark and Light series, which are these 850 page epic fantasy novels. And you know, my readers have been waiting for the second book for a while. So I was just thinking, oh man, you know, I can't, I can't take the time off. I can't take six months off and, and do another book. And so Red Eagle said, look, let's just, you know, why don't we do it together? Um, I'm a faster writer than you are. You know, you do the outline. I'll do the, I'll do the first draft. Um, and then you can, you know, uh, fix it up and so forth. But what we actually ended up doing after we did the outline was that there were certain parts that were much more naturally in his wheelhouse, you know, stuff that was more related to history and, and politics. And then there was stuff that, that I was more interested in, uh, such as the economics and, uh, and the military stuff. So yeah, it, it was a division of labor that actually ended up working incredibly well. And I still cannot believe you know, we, we wrote the entire book from start to finish in two months. And I'm very, very pleased with how well it turned out in terms of, in terms of the quality.
1: I was wondering how you guys collaborated, because as I was reading it, I'm very attentive to matters of style, and I did not intuit that there was like one chapter that was written by you and another written by him. There seems to be a kind of uniformity of style throughout, so I was uh, I was curious as, as to how you guys worked on it.
0: I mean, we've got definitely different styles. For example, anyone who's read my stuff knows perfectly well that the, the economics chapter was largely mine. Right. The funny thing is that, you know, Red Eagle. You can't really tell. You could really tell when you saw the drafts because Red Eagle loves tables. I mean, he had these huge tables, and I was just looking at them, going, "Yeah, this is not going to work on an ebook." So I I converted them. You know, some of them I converted into text. Some of them I converted into the the charts that are in the book. Mm -hmm. But um, but where you can usually tell the difference stylistically is that. He's more of a storyteller than I am, whereas I'm more of an analyst. And so, okay. you know, when, when there's these, these, uh, convoluted analogies about a, a married couple or whatever, you, know, you can be, you can be sure that that's him.
1: <laughs> okay. I thought those analogies were very effective, by the
0: way. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a really good writer. I mean, in, in some ways, in, in some ways I would say that he's a, he's probably a better writer than I am.
1: Well, I, I think the, there's a certain amount of your patented snark, your cutting humor in there that I, I saw throughout. So I thought, you know, this this all sounds like Vox Day to me. Oh,
0: well, well, that's the,
1: that's the thing. R-
0: Red Eagle is actually snarkier than I am. Oh, okay. I mean, the, okay. The, you know, I was actually toning him down <laughs> throughout the whole thing. I mean, it, you know, if we had actually come out with the version, you know, the first draft and and put that up. I mean, it would have it would have been even more offensive.
1: Okay, um, well, I, I wasn't offended. Sometimes you just have to take off the gloves with people who are this ridiculous. So it's well, a very entertaining
0: read. There's yeah. taking off the gloves, and there's, like, sticking the knife in the jugular vein.
1: Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So. so let's just go through... Chapter by chapter, because there are good points in every chapter and we can sort of hit the highlights. Uh, the first is called the myth of the melting pot.
0: Well, the melting pot mythology is something that, that every American is familiar with. It's something that, you know, we, we hear all the time. We, it's, it's one of the most common rhetorical phrases that, you know, along with nation of immigrants and all that sort of thing. And I was really startled when maybe two, three years ago, but, you know, I ended up looking it up for some reason. I have no idea why. But, you know, I was just kind of curious, how did this whole melting pot thing really get going? Because if you think about it, whenever you hear melting pot, you always hear it in the context of Ellis Island. But Ellis Island was, you know, 200, more than 200 years after the the country was originally you know colonized. And so, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. There's, you know, a lot of times when I go digging into things, it's because there's this, this, the sense of something being wrong, something not adding up. And so I looked into it and it turned out that the whole concept of the melting pot is totally foreign to America. It has nothing to do with America except that it, it, it's a, a British Zionist Jews romantic idea of what America was. Israel Zangwill. He wrote a play called The Melting Pot back in 1907. So he wrote this play and it, it ended up being very popular. It was on Broadway and everything. And it, it was this whole idea of how America was the melting pot, the crucible that took all the races of Europe and and turned them into a new race called the American. And so yeah, you know, there are a couple of points that we thought were interesting there. First of all, the melting pot was only ever conceived as something that was transforming various European nations into the American race. You know, there was no question of anything to do with the, the, the Asian races, the African races, etc. Secondly, it had nothing to do it was not an American tradition. Again, this is just a this is just a a literary concept that, that somebody who didn't know very much about America had come up with. Um, now it was popular, you know, it was a, uh, Theodore Roosevelt in particular thought it was, was a great image and so forth. Um, and, you know, and, and it is, I mean, it's, it's effective, uh, theater. But that's all it is. It's theater. It's just a fictional concept. It doesn't actually explain anything. Um, it doesn't explain uh, what happened then it doesn't explain what's happened since it doesn't explain what's happening now and so you know for those uh, americans who you know talk about it like it's a real thing i mean they're they might as well be talking about
1: zeus right well it's a, it's a description of assimilation i guess and one of the things that strikes me as ironic when people talk about the melting pot today is we're not even trying to assimilate foreigners anymore uh, right? We're not demanding that they uh, change their language and their uh, customs and live up to uh, American standards. Uh, we're catering to them. They're assimilating us.
0: Even though it's a fiction, you know, we don't even hold to the fiction. Right. You know, ex- except as you know, the pro-immigrationists use it as uh, a rhetorical tool to influence the, you know, uninformed and the thoughtless.
1: Right yeah it really did refer simply to Europeans who were not all that different in their underlying stock and had a common civilizational tradition, even though they spoke different languages and so you know, it was it was certainly possible for that to happen and it was happening throughout American history. There were small groups of Dutch and Swedes in the colonial era who sort of mixed in with the Anglo stock. And then the Germans and later Irish and Italians and so forth. But yeah, you can't mix radically heterogeneous types together. And even if you could, there there comes a point when people say, well, wait a second, there's certain elements of our identity that we don't want to lose. Yeah, just because it would make it easier for us to function in society doesn't mean that we want to lose our identity. And I remember in the 19th century and 20th century, that was the ideology that was uh, used to justify taking American Indian children away from their families and raising them in schools where they would be taught English and basically deracinated.
0: Oh, exactly. And, you know, and to a certain extent, I mean, you know, both Red Eagle and I were, um, you know, obviously affected by that. Neither one of us speaks more than a few words of our tribal tongues.
1: Yeah.
0: And, um you know, so it's... It, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know i mean i can remember going off to college and my mother warning me uh about drinking mm-hmm. you know just she's like you know uh remember we're kind of susceptible to that and at the time i didn't really yeah you know, i didn't know what she was talking about i thought she was you know trying to come up with some excuse to keep me from partying right um, but yeah that's that's a real legitimate issue for american indians right you know um and so you know we we can pretend that these things don't matter all we like, but you know science is is finding out more and more about the the human genetics and and uh the various complicated interrelations of of nature and nurture and and how you know i mean it, it's kind of funny because you know we get in, in discussions on the blog all the time about you know between there's not really any blank slatists on on the blog, but there are people who are a little bit more um heavily on the side of, of nurture than nature mm-hmm. and and one thing that that i say to both sides is that you know if you're saying it's just culture uh you know you're not saying anything at all because culture is a blend uh, that of of nature and nurture that cannot be extricated you know, mm-hmm. you can't you will never be able to look at a culture and say well these parts are are on the the basis, um, solely of, of in influence as the, as the kids are raised. And these parts are because of the, you know, genetics and the capabilities of, of those particular people. The genetics influence the nurturing, which then in turn influence the genetics. Right. You know, I think people can go too far on the other side, on, on the side of nature as well. I mean, in addition to the whole difference between averages and, and outliers. Yeah, you've also got the fact that you can influence the genetics of a population group by how you treat them and how you incentivize them. Oh so, yeah,
1: eugenics or dysgenics. Culture influences genes and genes influence culture. There are certain reasons though why in one part of Germany people are catholic and the other part and right next door across the river they're protestant. The explanation for that is going to be historical. There's probably not a gene that explains
0: it's it's uh, religious cleansing. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. the in Switzerland, each different canton is you know either Catholic or Protestant, and they forcibly swap populations. You know, if you were yeah. Catholic in one canton, if you were Catholic in a Protestant canton, at a certain point in time, you were you know <laughs> you were informed that you would move. And, and, and of course, you know, being Swiss, I'm sure they did.
1: <laughs> yeah, and in a very orderly fashion. Yeah. There's definitely a dimension to culture that's genetically determined, uh, although you can't explain all culture in terms of genes. And genes are also influenced by culture by influencing how people breed, who breeds, you know, how often, right? One of the things that strikes me about people who want to emphasize culture is, they, they're desperate to do that because, of course, culture, they think, is malleable. It's certainly more malleable than genes. But when you actually look at culture, it's very difficult to change a person's culture. It's your second nature. There's your first nature, which is your genetic nature, and then your culture is, is your second nature, and, you know the idea that well it's cultural we can simply change everything and everything can be moved in the direction of equality or whatever doesn't really take into account how difficult that really is and how how destructive you have to be if you really want to have well like Mao did a cultural revolution right that was one of the great horrors of human history when he tried to break with the uh, the culture of the past.
0: And it didn't work very well either. No, you know, I mean, I mean, look at to me. What's kind of amazing is if you look at Russia today. You know, they had eighty nine years of militant atheism. Yeah, you know, I mean, they literally had the League of the Militant Godless running things over there. Um, you know, they were trying to do their best to stamp out the the Christian Church, the cat, the orth, you know, the Orthodox Church, and yet it's what twenty five years after the the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you know you've got Putin talking as if he's uh, you know he's practically talking like a, a medieval Catholic monarch except for orthodox style right um, and, and, and that shows how you know deep into the into the cultural heart the uh you know the various uh, traditions and and identifications are buried.
1: Right. It is interesting though looking at Eastern Europe, Poland is so intensely Catholic. You go to the Czech Republic and they're almost entirely atheists, so or the Baltic states and religion has almost disappeared there. The the second chapter is Magic Dirt or the Magic Dirt uh, and And that really sort of speaks to what we 're already talking about it's the idea that you can take people from any old place, and as long as they come to the to new lands, new circumstances they're going to be changed so right um america is is magic dirt, and if we bring everybody to america they're and we don't even have to try to assimilate them anymore apparently it 's just going to magically happen they're going to become americans i I loved your example of going north and south of the Rio Grande. The dirt's pretty much the same, but the people are very different.
0: The interesting thing is the name of the town is even the same. It's Nogales, Mexico versus Nogales, New Mexico, or no, Nogales, Arizona. Uh-huh. And, and yet the, the difference in practically every societal measure of civilization, whether you're talking about per capita income, whether you're talking about literacy rates, whether you're talking about probably the number of flushing toilets, there's a massive massive difference between the American culture on the north side of the border and the Mexican culture on the south side. There is a difference in the genetics because the uh, Arizona was you know maybe you know fifteen twenty percent um Mexican whereas you know the on the Mexican side it was probably nearly a hundred percent and the the cultures are just fundamentally different you know they they're, they're you know, when you drive from the north of Italy to the south of Italy, northern Italy is fairly dirty, but it's, it's all functional. You know, they, they the north, they, they talk about it like, you know, in the north we work. <laughs> you know, and then you're driving down in, in the southern part of Italy. I mean, even, not even particularly far south. I mean, we're talking like, you know, around Rome and it's amazing just how bad the roads are. You know, they just, they can't bother to fix them. And, and we're not talking about, you know, a, a northern climate where the, the roads get torn up by the, the water, you know, leaking in and then freezing. Um, you know, they just don't do fundamental uh, uh, maintenance. And, and that's part of the culture, you know. And, and one of the things I, d- I note in the book is that, you know, this is not a, a judgmental statement. You know, I like southern Italian culture. I've had some of the best times of my life, you know, down in the south of Italy hanging out with Italians who are like just having a good time. You know, that's what they like to do. Just get together in a big group and drink some good wine and, and talk and, and enjoy life. And that's a good thing. You know, the problem is it doesn't really, you know, you're not going to get to the moon that way.
1: So that brings us to the third chapter really, which is a really, I thought, well-written, concise discussion of DNA and breaking the blank slate model. Uh, So you and your co-author take a strong stance on this. It's not all nurture. We're not blank slates. We come into the world with innate genetic potential. And this can't be ignored anymore by politics. The idea that race is a social construct doesn't fly.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, it's there's way too much evidence. And, and the thing that's really shocking is how much of the evidence back from the sort of, you know, 19th century racialist science, you know, we, we tend to think of it as being pseudoscience, but some of it was actually quite good. And some of it is, uh you know, definitely being confirmed by the more precise and, and accurate science that's being performed today. And so, you know, I, I think it's, absolutely and utterly foolish I mean, I mean i i don't see what the blank slatists are even going to do because you know the, the the science there is vastly more settled than any of the climate science or or you know any of the social science stuff that they that they are constantly citing you know i mean this is this is hard science hard biology um you know it's not just you know just butter collecting and surveys and, and asking people how they feel you know this is real objective stuff that you can
1: if you've got the proper equipment go out and replicate yourself it is kind of shocking how academia can just sort of cordon off this very well documented and well proved biological science about human genetic differences and just proceed as if it doesn't exist and doesn't matter
0: well and 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 it matters greatly. I mean, the thing that I think is really going to scare a lot of people, you know, a number of people have told me that, that you know, it really kind of changed their thinking on immigration was the section that deals with the way that immigration has caused the average IQ uh, in numerous Western societies to drop, you know. Uh, I think the Danes may have been the first one to discover it. They, you know, they they intelligence test all of their soldiers in order to assign them to proper you know, proper categories. And what they found was that the the average IQ um, of or the IQ of the average recruit had dropped 1.5 percent or 1.5 IQ points. And this has happened in a fairly rapid period of time. In fact, in Britain, the the average IQ of 14-year-olds uh, dropped two whole points in something like 22 years. Yeah, you know, so I mean, it's not just it's not just your perception. You know, when you watch TV, it's not just your perception that that thing are you know that things are a little bit more stupid than they used to be. They're literally having to aim at a lower common denominator than before, because people literally are not as intelligent as they were in, you know, 1980 or or, or 1960. It may actually be worse, but you know, we calculated that based on the changing racial demographics that the average IQ um of Americans has dropped from, you know, very close to 100 in 1960 to about 96 today.
1: Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. Uh, there's an article at the Countercurrents website by Marion Van Court, who's a eugenics writer. And I, I can't really grab the data off the top of my head right now, but I think her argument was that uh, even a 3% drop in average IQ in a society can lead to enormous increases in all kinds of measures of social pathology. Crime, illegitimacy, Accidents, even there's a kind of multiplier effect that a small decrease in average IQ leads to large increases in certain measurable social bads that we would like to avoid, and you know this is very well established. I mean the numbers add up. You can crunch through this and you can see how it works. One of the things that I really uh, found sobering about Richard Lynn's book called IQ and Global Inequality, I edited that book, edited it in the proofing stage, and so I went through it very carefully. And that he recognizes, he talks about how we know that there are other factors that determine human well being. But when you actually look at statistics, it's as if IQ is the only one that really matters. You can you can proceed as if it's the only thing because it has such powerful predictive uh, ability to uh basically track all kinds of indexes of social well-being or social decay it's 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 very sobering uh when you start seeing yeah our societies are becoming dumber and we're going to lose things
0: there's a new book uh by a guy named Garrett Jones i haven't read it yet but i i want to it's called hive mind and it basically says that the um he's a, he's an economist and he says that your nation's IQ matters much more than your own. Uh, because you know, that is, and it's basically a variant of what you're saying is that establishes what your society is going to be. And so, um, you know, because the, 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 you know, it's the people that make the difference in society are not the smartest people. They're not the rocket scientists. Um, you know, um, I, I think it was really surprising there was a um uh, somebody did a a study and they actually went and measured the IQs of you know what what we tend to consider you know the the intellectual class and their IQs were shockingly low. I mean like we're talking like you know 125 or so. And you know what what they found was that the the really smart people basically are not terribly influential in society because they can't even talk to people. You know the 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 gap, what they call the communications gap, is considered to be about thirty IQ points. Um, and I've you know found that to be relatively true. Um, in fact, it's it's kind of a joke on the blog how um, you know I will you know write something, and then the um, you know sort of mid range people get it. And then they will, you know, kind of then explain it to the, the folks that are, you know, kind of more on, on the average level. Uh, because the average folks frequently have no freaking idea what I'm even talking about. And, and I don't understand, you know, I don't understand why they're not following, so I can't explain it to them. And so, um, you know, because it's a community that's been around for 13 years, you know, this is not a problem you know we 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 all have a way of dealing with it but you know th- these commu- communication gaps are real and so but if you take let, let's say the people that are making you know starting the companies uh, and um you know leading the 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 country and so forth if 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 you're dealing with people who instead of being you know over a standard deviation um above the average if if you're suddenly dealing with people who are more around the 115 range you're, you're suddenly dealing with a, a different quality of thought, and and also I I think that it's strongly correlated. I'm not entirely sure, but if I recall correctly, um, time preferences are are also something that can be correlated with intelligence, and you know to me that's almost more important you know, because it doesn't matter how smart you are if you can't see beyond tomorrow. If you can't if you don't have the self discipline to to not eat all the food you've got, you know, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Maybe, you know, if you're really smart, maybe you can come up with some clever way to, to, you know, g- keep getting yourself out of problems. But the most successful societies are the ones that just keep plugging away. The ones who plan for tomorrow, who put off for, you know, put off for tomorrow, who prepare, who plant. <laughs> and, and so uh, for me, the, it, it's very important to look at the intelligence factor and and I, I do understand that that is you know the most useful predictor but i think it'd be very interesting to if it was possible to study whether time preferences or intelligence were really the most important factor
1: yeah that is an interesting question it clearly is the case that great civilizations are characterized by long time horizons and one of the things that i think is a very valuable critique of democracy Is that it simply shortens time horizons Uh, when you had dynasties, right? That were thinking in you know in terms of grand strategies stretching over centuries, and uh, they believed that their own blood would be around to benefit from their decisions. I think people were more prudent than politicians, right? Uh, In democratic societies, where you know every, I remember I lived in Atlanta for a while and. Every 10 years or so, Atlanta would have a terrible snowstorm, and everything would be shut down, and, you know, civilization would grind to a halt, businesses would grind to a halt, it would cost enormous amounts of money to the economy, and they never had a plan to deal with it, they never had the equipment to deal with it, etc., and somebody pointed out to me, their mayors are elected in four-year cycles, and... They might get re elected once or something, chances are they're not going to have to deal with it, and so they're not planning for it, right? right. And uh yeah, you know, this is why I think Frank Herbert was such a genius when he wrote Dune, thinking what kind of civilization would be the civilization that actually goes out and colonizes the stars, which requires great lengths of time. They would have to have a far greater time horizon and it would be more of an aristocratic society, a feudal aristocratic society rather than a democratic one. It makes sense. So yeah, and we got to the moon, uh, but we haven't gone there recently. And I think that's because we're just more democratic and more of our people are, you know, easily pandered to low time preference people and, you know... Politicians are going to do really well. They don't have to do anything glorious or think about the the future. They just have to hand out free cell phones.
0: Well, in in fairness, one thing I think that we should keep in mind is that we did discover that there are a bunch of rocks on the moon too. So that was, you know, (laughs) that may have, that may have played a role. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is very discouraging when you, when you look at it that way, uh, you know, when you realize that and that's why, like I said, so many people who have read the book have said that to them that was the, the really shocking part was uh, it's fine and all to talk about how wonderful, in theory, to talk about how wonderful it is that you can get different types of ethnic food and, and so forth. And, and of course, the the number of people who can actually understand economics at all is, is trivial. And so it's very easy to just say, oh, yes, it's good for the economy and who's going to know any better? But it's very easy for people to understand that, oh, guess what? We're more stupid than we used to be. Because, frankly, we kind of see a lot of signs of it all over the place.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that's so flattering about the progressive mentality is it teaches us that we are entitled to believe that we are superior to Plato and Aristotle and Darwin simply because we were born later in time, right? Right. We're more with it. We're more plugged in. You know, We have Facebook. Did Plato have Facebook? You know, we've got all this computing power at our fingertips and so forth. And the fact of the matter is, though, that on average, we're getting dumber. You know, we can't continue doing that forever and expect to keep, you know, this wonderful technology improving. We would like to be going to the stars, but we're actually more more likely going back to the Stone Age in terms of our genetic decay.
0: Oh, without question. I mean, it, it's... I think it's very frustrating, you know, to to see that we're doing this so unnecessarily. There's no good reason for it. There's no reason that we needed to go this way, and and yet we have.
1: Why has the left? Why has the left done this to us? And why do these damned conservatives just enable them and follow them along like their shadow?
0: Well, the the left is is much more is much easier. Uh, Is much easier to understand because the left, to be a leftist, almost by definition, you have to not understand the link between actions and consequences. Practically every leftist <clears throat> that I talk to does not, on a fundamental level, grasp the connection between actions and consequences. They, they always have this... Um, you know that famous New Yorker cartoon where it says, "And then a miracle happens." Right. Yeah. I mean, the, every single plan that you talk about with the left wing, um, you, you know, they they never think through anything. You know, we're having a a, a bit of a debate with um, some folks that f- you know favor gun control and disarmament, and I said, "Look, it's not going to happen." Do you not understand that? you know there is a significant statistic a statistically significant minority who possesses weapons that is willing to kill you or die themselves rather than give up their weapons and yeah i so, said you know are you genuinely prepared to fight a civil war and you know <laughs> they're not they're not prepared they're not prepared for that they're not even thinking of that you know, they right. they just they just think that you magically pass a law and then everyone will, you know, uh, turn their weapons in and then, and then the problem goes away. And, and, and to, in, in fairness, they have seen examples like that work, you know, like for example in Australia or to a, to a certain extent in Britain. Um, and, and yet those countries have seen, you know, increases in in the rate of gun violence and so forth while the u.s. gun violence has has, you know dropped in half even though the population has grown and so uh, you know there is no other way to understand it than to accept the fact that they do not understand the consequences they don't understand the link between their actions and the consequences of them
1: right one of my favorite lines in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged is, you'll do something, Mr. Reardon. You'll figure out how to make our regulations work, right? The liberal proposes and the businessman or the conservative or the cuck conservative disposes and tries to make it all work, tries to enable them. And they can't be bothered with the details, and they can't even be bothered to know whether it's possible or not.
0: Right. Well, the, the they're the idea folks. I mean, yes. if you think about it, that's actually how they think of themselves. They think, about, you know, well, I'm I'm the idea person. Yeah. You know, I, I I have the idea and and I don't need to figure out how to make it work. You figure out how to make it work. And you know, of course, the, the reality is that it's just it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And you know, and and it's it's so funny too because it, that's why I think you know, cuz one thing that's hard <clears throat> I think for uh, people on the right to understand is, how do these people have a superiority complex when, you know, they can't even tie their shoes? And, you know, but, but that's the, the, the whole reason that they're left-wing in the first place is that they are in emotional denial of reality. And so, you know, denying, you know, reversing their feelings of inadequacy and, and, um, you know, claiming superiority on that basis yeah you know, that's nothing for them you know the the idea that immigration is good for the economy is that's nothing for them they can you know they can uh justify that without even blinking and right. so um but the one thing that does seem to penetrate a little bit a little bit through their thick skulls is because they are uh, you know for the left intelligence is a fetish it's the one thing that they really, really value highly because, you know, otherwise you're just the same as everyone else. And so, you know, it, it's possible that that might be the one way to, to reach the left on the immigration issue is, you know, how are you going to get your shiny, secular, you know, your shiny, sexy, secular utopia if if people can't even tie their shoes?
1: Right. Well, they, they do have this strange attitude that IQ is a myth and that they're smarter than you are because they, they've been clued in on this fact. Uh, I, I don't quite know how to, <laughs> how to get around that kind of mentality, right?
0: But that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. They, they live in this delusion bubble. I mean, that's, that's just your crazy logic, man. <laughs>
1: you,
0: know? you, you just, you, you just need to expand your mind properly and And you know be able to to maintain that that sort of leftist double think that you're referring to
1: yeah well the the thing that really gets me is why does anybody listen why does anybody listen to these people anymore, and two, why are conservatives so intimidated by these people that they in effect just enable them in making the world worse i mean a liberal today is a person who thinks that they are more enlightened than you because they think there's nothing wrong with, in fact, that it's it's a sign of progress and civilization that a couple of lesbians who live in Berkeley are giving hormones to turn their little boy into a girl. They think that that's wonderful, that's glorious, that's progress. That doesn't seem like child abuse to them, right? And if you uh, if you say that sounds like child abuse to you, that just proves that you're a Retrograde, Neanderthal, and probably a religious fundamentalist. I mean, how can anybody take these people seriously, much less cravenly want their approval? And yet that is the mentality of the Cuxervatives. So let's, let's look in chapter, uh, discuss your next chapter, chapter four, which is called From Conservative to Cuxervative. How did these people come about and how can we fix them?
0: Well, the cons- the important thing to understand is that there is no American conservative ideology. You know, conservatives basically, uh, other than the religious conservatives, um, most conservatives don't have any actual principles. Um, I don't mean they're unprincipled um, in terms of their their morality. I mean they literally do not have any. Uh, foundational principles upon which their their political positions are based and so because of that conservatism is and always has been fundamentally reactionary i mean when when the left calls conservatives reactionaries it's a very correct term because the conservatives have no goals of their own they have no positions of their own everything is just um let's let's slow down what the left is trying to do and so and the problem with that of course is that you know you get to the as as things change over time as the left manages to move things to the left the new conservatives are now defending the position that the that the liberals were pushing for 20 years before and so um you know if you if you just look at it from a uh basic strategic point of view um even a game theory point of view uh conservatism cannot succeed it is it's you know it, the the whole noble defeat thing that so many conservatives uh seem to take some pleasure in is actually totally in keeping with the uh ideology as it is as it stands and you know one of the things we looked at is i mean the interesting thing about the conservative is they're not even properly conservatives anymore because they don't abide by two of russell kirk's six quote-unquote principles of conservatism now we showed in the book that those principles are not really proper principles they're more attitudes than anything but but even when it just comes to the attitudes the conservatives have to a certain extent uh abandoned both the the respect for tradition um, as well as the skepticism towards uh, people with plans for improving society that are supposed to be hallmarks of the conservative spirit,
1: yeah one of the things that struck me about your discussion of Kirk and also your discussion of william f Buckley is is the essentially passive dependence that these people have on the left, the left sets the agenda. And as Buckley says, uh, you know, thinking himself so clever, we're just standing in, uh athwart the, the tracks yelling, stop. Well, <laughs> that's that's a very weak position to be in.
0: Well, it, it's tr- it sounds great. And but as it turns out, it was true. And that was all he was doing.
1: It was all and, he was doing. And really, all that he aspired to do was get off the tracks and get in the dining car while the left is piloting the train down the tracks towards Utopia. The conservatives are in the last car. You know, they're going to get there last, but they're still being pulled by the left. The left is the engine. The left is the vanguard. The left is doing all the... uh the piloting, the planning, whatever, you know, they're, they're along for the ride, basically. And one of the things that I thought was very good about the chapter is you show that the conservative mentality is really in the DNA of post-war American conservatism because who's the great founder of post-war American conservatism? It's William F. Buckley. And Buckley, from the very beginning, had this attitude that we have to throw people overboard, throw them under the bus to... Maintain the good graces of the Eastern liberal establishment, of the liberal press, and so forth. And so, you know, with the Birchers onto other groups, he was throwing them overboard, and that's basically the conservative agenda. And now they've basically thrown everything conservative overboard. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I thought that was a really good chapter, and it shows how deep the rock goes.
0: Oh, I I did too, and Red Eagle wrote most of that one, so it was it was it was fascinating for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my my about my only my only uh, contribution to that particular chapter was when I was going through it, I was like, you know, the conservatives didn't even this doesn't even describe them, you know, it it partly describes them, but but they they completely go against two of the, um, so you know, even even as uh, I mean, that's why. They don't really deserve to be called conservatives, even though they would call themselves uh, conservatives, is because they are not uh, in keeping with, you know, one third of the of the foundation of American conservatism.
1: Exactly. the The next three chapters deal well. The next four chapters really deal with immigration. I think immigration is the great political question of our time. I mean, we can actually make progress on immigration, and if we can make progress on immigration, we can maybe save America, save Europe, and so forth. So, give us some of your thoughts on, on the immigration issue.
0: Well, I think that the first thing to keep in mind is that you know we're not talking about theory anymore. You know, back in In 1965, even to a lesser extent, in 1986, it was still possible to talk about the theory of it. It's not possible to do that anymore because we have 50 years of experience of it, and that's why one of the chapters is called 50 Years of Failure. You know, there's there's no doubt that it doesn't work. There's no doubt that they don't assimilate. There's no doubt that they drive the average, uh, you know, the nation's IQ down. They drive the nation's wealth down. Um, the negative effect on the nation, whether you're talking about the USA, whether you're talking about the UK, whether you're talking about Denmark, whether you're talking about Norway, whether you're talking about Finland, the the net result is tremendously negative and tremendously destructive. And so, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't have. I mean, the, you know, the one hope that that we have across the West. I'm not one of those people who runs around saying, oh, you know, the, the West is doomed. The, you know, the English are doomed. The white race is doomed. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't buy into that for a second. You know, um, to put it in perspective, I remember reading books that were published in the early 20th century that was genuinely concerned about the idea that the Negro race was going to be uh gone by the you know like the middle of the 21st century you know that's what the demographic trends were back then but the the problem is that you know these mass migrations are always directly correlated with large scale war and uh, it, you know as 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 bad as things are in Europe it, it's very important to remember Europe is reacting Violently to only a million immigrants. You know, and Europe has 520 million people. Europe's got nearly 200 million people more than the USA. Meanwhile, the USA has been bringing in a million immigrants a year for 50 years. Right, right. And so, you know, you know, people, people look at Europe and they say, oh, that, you know, it's, it's so terrible. Look at all these, these, you know, horrible things that are happening and, you know, Europe must be doomed. And over here we're looking at it going, yeah, we're actually doing something about it.
1: Right. I, <laughs> yeah. I was uh, talking to this guy in Hungary and he said, Greg, you don't understand, we have a terrible race problem in Hungary. And I said, really, tell me about it, because I was looking around Budapest, and it looked like paradise to me. And he said, oh, we have 500 Africans in Hungary. And I said, in the whole country? And he he said, yes. I said, you know, I think you're maybe overreacting a bit. I've been on, you know, subway trains with 500 Africans. But the, the point I took away from that was that Europeans... Have a lot less to complain about than Americans in, in terms of diversity, and they're a lot more concerned about it and that 's a sign of health
0: oh yeah well the, but the, this is part of what we talked about in in our last interview, and I was talking about how you know the the European national sense is much stronger you know if even if you just look at the political systems right now, yes, you know Donald Trump is. Gaining a lot of, of support because there are, is a national spirit that's rising in America. I mean, you know, Cuxervative went to number nine in nonfiction because, you know, people are, are interested in it. But that's very different than what you're seeing in France where the Front National now is the, you know, most powerful party in terms of popular support, you know, where the Swedish Democrats who are absolutely warred on by the entire establishment in sweden plus every single major newspaper and and television station and yet they've got you know more support than anyone you know so the 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 nationalist parties are rising very quickly the question in europe is is democracy going to survive it you know are, are the centrist parties going to throw out democracy in order to try to retain power to keep the to keep the nationalists out that's my concern in, in Europe, because if, if the nationalists come to power, they'll get everything under control. They'll ship they'll ship people back to their home countries, um, they'll get the you know, they'll get the migration rates down very low. And and it it should not be necessary for there to be any uh any serious conflict. The problem will be is if and the US may well be involved in it, because for example, the way that they got involved in Bosnia. Right. If the US gets involved and the centrist parties scheme and throw out democracy in order to keep the nationalist parties out, that's when you're going to see the, the hardcore nationalists, uh, the ultra nationalists come in. And they don't give a damn about democracy. They don't give a damn about anything other than making sure that their, the, the, their countries are totally homogenous. Right. And that's when it could get really ugly in Europe. But, but the, in the U.S., the problem is actually a, a much larger scale, because I don't think that the the political structure can survive. Yeah, you know, I just don't. I, you know, the the fifty million people in or sixty million people in fifty years is the biggest single human migration in human history.
1: The passage in the book that you in which you talk about that, I I thought was really powerful. Can I just read that for the benefit of the listeners? I actually copied and pasted that into my show notes. Sure. Yeah. The 50-year mass migration into the United States is the single largest invasion in human history. At over 60 million, it dwarfs Operation Barbarossa, in which Hitler sent 3.8 million men into the Soviet Union. It is two orders of magnitude larger than the Mongol horde of Batu Khan, which conquered over 2.3 million square miles of territory from Burma to Bulgaria. It is 1,000 times larger than the First Crusade, and it is twice the number of the immigrants who entered the United States between 1870 and 1930, and at the time represented an estimated 60% of the entire world's immigrants. It requires near-complete ignorance of history to assume as conservatives do, that an invasion of this magnitude will not have an extraordinary impact on the long-term fate of the United States, or that it does not represent an existential threat to the very survival of America as a nation. That really lays it out. That's that's really hard-hitting. And how, how can these people respond to this? I guess they're going to just try and stick their head in the ground and hope that you go away. But it is a tr- terrible problem.
0: No one, no one has had any response to that. No one. Not, not the critics. Not, I mean, they, they can't. You know, they, they, it, it, that's, I read a, um, there was, uh, someone had put up a blog post somewhere, um, you know, attempting to criticize the book and, you know, just nothing. That, you know, they just wave their hand and basically, you know, stick their head in the hand, sand and pray. That's all they've got. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure if you, if you press them, they would come up with some sort, some sort of, you know, it's 2015 argument, you know, as if that means anything. Yeah, that's, that's all they have to offer, which is that, well, maybe, maybe this time it will be different than, than every single other time that this, anything has happened on a smaller scale in history.
1: In short, that's that's the definition of insanity right there, right expecting a different result from the same process from the same mistake
0: well and and the thing that's so this so, that's so crazy about it is the fact that this is even larger scale than before, you know at least back when during the melting pot migration, there was a lot more room uh to be settled right you know the the parts of the country were still not entirely settled, and that sort of thing, and so um you know, there there was more room at the time, and and then of course, you know, the most of the immigrants coming in were a little bit uh, easier to assimilate than than those that are coming in now, and plus they were under some pressure to assimilate. So yeah, I I think that in the USA, if if we're lucky, uh, there will be some sort of uh, secession movements that will be permitted, and then some of those polities that secede. Will begin practicing forcible segregation and so forth. And of course, you know it's very easy for me to openly support that because I am a red segregationist. And I've yet to meet the white person who is willing to say that they're uh, willing to take more Indian land away by refusing to let us have reservations. Yeah, because what is what is an Indian reservation? It's it's segregation. You know, it's racial segregation, and 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 so you know, that for me, that's been something that's always been very rhetorically useful is saying, "Well, you believe in segregation too?" Well, they say, "No, I don't know." Well, you don't think that Indians should have have their own land? Well, of course they should. Well, you know, then you're a segregationist. You're just you're just saying that you know we should have our own land, but you shouldn't.
1: The segregation they're opposed to might actually benefit whites as a group, and that's taboo. So.
0: yeah but, but it's it's not here's what i've learned it's not that they are anti-white and that's the big mistake that i think a lot of the white nationalists make the the white people whose every action and so forth or whatever is is anti-white you know, we we tend to think of them you tend to think of them as being you know well you must hate white people or whatever but but the reality is they don't they just have no inability they no, have no ability whatsoever to envision a society where white people are not the overwhelming majority.
1: There is a there is a kind of grandiosity, a kind of delusion of invulnerability that a lot of these people definitely have. Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: But but I'm saying I, I agree, you're correct. But I'm saying that they do not understand the the concept of demographic change. They, they do not get it they they, they fundamentally cannot yeah you know, these these are people who feel rather than think, right. and it is not possible for them to feel something that they that they have not experienced
1: yeah, I, I remember Christian Lander, the guy who wrote stuff like people like was doing a talk in San Francisco back in two thousand and ten. I went and saw it, and one of the things that I came away f- with from that you know, book signing and talk was a sense of total invulnerability to demographic change. Uh, just just this this sort of blithe sense that it's always gonna work out right. The the kind of alarm that I was feeling was just totally foreign to these people and they actually kind of used it as a kind of status signaling that their of their superiority that they're not worried about this kind of stuff. But what, me worry about affirmative action? That's for little people to worry about, right? So, I mean, there is a definite uh, quality of that with a lot of people on the left, especially, but a lot of people on the right, too. Um, One of the best chapters in the book is the Immigration and Economics chapter. I really felt that you destroy this sort of uh, silly idea. Well, it's bound to be good for the economy. It's good for some people's economy, but for the working class in America, uh, for the middle class, for the vast majority of America, it's really not good for them, and uh I think one of the sort of concluding numbers that you crunched out is that whenever a immigrant shows up in america it's it costs the native born working population about the the equivalent of one fifth of a job, which is one of the reasons why we have stagnating wages and declining living standards and also Another factor that really is striking to me is this recent data about the massive mortality now that we're finding amongst basically working and lower middle class white people who are middle-aged. They're, they're dying off at rates that recall what happened after the collapse of communism in Russia.
0: Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that when, when you've got a society that that is in decline – as the the west in general and and the us are and, and you know a society that's being taken over people lose hope you know they they don't have they don't have mu- any hope they don't have any reason to live everything all they see ahead of them is is change and darkness and so i think that that and and um if i if i recall correctly you're not a christian correct correct yeah, I think that this is where it's much more difficult for the, the secular or for the pagan, um, right winger than the Christian one because, um, you know, Christians are really accustomed to being, the, to the idea that they might not always be on top. And, um, you know, Christians always fall away. You know, th- th- there's plenty of, of, you know, soft Christians that fall away, but when you've got a, an attitude that says um okay at some point in my life i may be tested by somebody threatening to kill me if i don't agree to you know disavow jesus christ and so forth um that that's a question that most christians have wrestled with at some point in time it's something they've thought about and and yet they make the decision okay i'm going to i'm going to stick with this and and beyond that we also have this institutional memory of when the Christian church was basically 11 guys. So the Christian West is not inclined to give in to despair. But the West is no longer anywhere nearly as Christian as it used to be. And so I think that that's why you're seeing a lot of the... um a lot more of the despair, a lot more of the, the, you know, the people that just don't see a future because, you know, it's hard to see a positive future for the West considering the, you know, the unreliable at best loyalties of the leadership. The number of people who are enthusiastically embracing, you know, the invasion and their demographic replacement. Yeah, you know, and you look, and and then you're thinking, okay, so the the best case outcome is, you know, some sort of big civil war and and secessions, and you know, no wonder people are depressed.
1: Oh yeah, I remember years ago when somebody started explaining peak oil to me, and I I shocked them when I I sort of listened to the argument, and I said, look, this is optimism. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the, the the scenario that you're laying out is optimism. Uh, and uh, they were, they were rather appalled by that. But yeah, exactly. I, uh, we don't have a future right now. Whites as a race don't have a future if present trends continue. And I think more whites are aware of that. And I think it's a pretty depressing prospect for a lot of people. And let's talk about your ninth chapter though, which is called Christianity and Cuxervicism. I thought that was a really good chapter. And for somebody who's not a Christian, You know, I look around at the Christian churches and I shake my head and uh, I just think, oh, my God, you know, they're they're the enemy. We have to fight them. And the trouble is, is that Christians within my little white nationalist world spend more of their time trying to get me to um, shut up about the, the churches and not criticize them than they seem to spend time criticizing the churches. For doing these terrible things uh, and encouraging the decline, encouraging the invasion, and so forth and it's it was very good to see a chapter written by uh, from a Christian perspective that takes the gloves off, and you know, really you really clean these people 's clock and so let 's talk a bit about your argument in the Christianity and conservatism chapter
0: well the the first thing that that I should say that I thought was interesting was that um You know, one of my colleagues, uh, who is very, very different than I am with regards to theology. You know, I'm, I'm what they call an open theist and he's a, he's a a serious five step Calvinist or whatever it's called. And, uh, it, it was, it was kind of funny because I had sent him the chapter after I'd finished it. (laughs) You know, I was, I was expecting to get one of his patented 40 page critiques. I mean, he literally writes these just yeah you know, I, I mean he's re- he wrote a forty something page critique of a blog post once <laughs> and so yeah I was just thinking, my gosh I'm going to get an encyclopedia back and I was absolutely astounded when he sent me a, a message back saying, I don't disagree with a single word, and what that tells you is that if two christians who are on completely opposite theological you know, ends of the theological spectrum, if we both completely agree on it, then how Christian it, it, are these so called Christian churches you know right. and and that 's what the chapter really shows, which is that all of this you know pro immigration don't say illegal alien uh, you know adopt the little black kids blah 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 all the all the stuff that you see coming out of the churches today it's it's not only bullshit it's not christian you know the the, the most powerful thing in that chapter is the the verse where jesus christ himself says it is not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs you know, and he was referring to people there. Right. You know, he, uh, you would think that, that uh, people who are anti-Christian would, at some point in time, have landed on that verse and used it to claim that Jesus was a racist or something.
1: There is one anti-Christian I know who loves to quote that passage and say, see how evil and rotten Jesus is. And I, I look at this and I think, well.
0: That's the one thing I agree with.
1: <laughs> this is very useful. No, seriously, the... um the the thing that gets me uh, about the sort of, you know, what you call churchianity, which is a good term, the churchians today, is they seem to want to deny that it's moral and right to have any preference for your own children over strangers, for your own country over neighbors, for your own race over other races, and yet you zero in on that in in the New Testament, indicating that, no, those sorts of preferences were regarded as as natural. And, you know, looking at Aquinas, for instance, Aquinas in his questions on charity, basically he says, yes, you know, God's love flows through all of creation, right? But creation consists of, of, of hierarchies and of concentric circles of relationships. And so you have a natural preference for your own over strangers and that structure to preferences doesn't impede the grace of god and it's not something that needs to be fought against or disdained and yet what you've got with christians today is this is this pure xenophilia this perverse attitude that the neighbor is not your neighbor no the neighbor is somebody who's far more foreign than your neighbor, and in fact, your preference for these foreigners often turns your neighbor's life into living hell.
0: Right, but all the, But again, the, you know, these are people who call themselves Christians, but but you know, they're when they're preaching immigration from the gospel, they're doing exactly what the Apostle Paul warned about. You know, which is was the the whole wolf's and sheep's clothing. Right, and and you know, these are not Christians. Uh, I'm, I'm not playing. I'm not playing. No true Scotsman here. I am mm-hmm. saying that these are not people, it, for the most part. I'm, I'm talking about, and I'm talking about the leaders. I'm not talking about the you know the average church members who, right? Who, uh, but th- these are people who you know worship at the temple of Babel.
1: Right.
0: I would not be surprised at all if the, if many of them actually serve some other god. And, you know, it's the same sort of thing that we see in, you know, I actually got the concept of SJW entryism from a, uh, being told about a church that had been basically invaded by people who, uh, you know, managed to take it over. And, and the crazy thing is I, I mentioned this in the book, the same thing happened 20 years later, you know, just this last couple, last two years at one of the churches that that my parents attended you know i actually know one of the pastors involved and and my uncle was on, on the board of the church and uh they ended up you know getting um invaded by these you know sjw's who promptly announced that they had a vision for combining christianity with islam and and wanted to call it chrislam now now you cannot possibly hold christianity responsible for that because you know that that is anti-christianity of a sort that richard dawkins never dreamed of
1: oh god yes i mean the the core issue is really the idea of charity and loving your neighbor and being kind to strangers and so forth and that notion carries a great deal of moral weight uh, even in the minds of non-christians right and it's been perverted into an attitude where you measure your virtue by the degree to which you betray the people close to you and side with the people far away, uh, and it's, per, it's it overturns families, it overturns communities, it overturns societies. It's 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 just a kind of a kind of moralistic absurdity that is an agent of chaos and destruction.
0: And and you've you've seen the Lord of the Rings. What do we usually call a good that is perverted into something else other than its purpose? Well, you tell me. We usually call that evil. Evil. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, and so, um, I think that this churchianity is absolutely evil. I think it is absolutely of the devil. I don't think that you even need to be Christian to pick up the scent of brimstone from it. And, you know, I, I realize that, that for your, uh, secular viewers, that may sound nuts and that's fine. But m- my point is that the good news for the, uh, the the secular and the pagan right is that true Christianity, the, the Christianity that that exploded across the world, and, and the Christianity that that caused the lands of Europe to become Christendom, is on your side ultimately, in in, in that regard. And there's no question about that. In fact, you know, even someone like Anders Breivik. Recognize that Brzevich is not a Christian. You know, he he does not worship Jesus Christ, but he described himself as a cultural Christian because right. he under he understood that connection. Right in, in Europe, that's going to be the big change. The big factor of change. It's not an accident that Putin often speaks in religious terms. You know, it's not an accident that the the forces that are rising in Poland. And Hungary, even Hungary, like you said, is fairly secular, but when you, uh, when you listen to the, um, you know, to the nationalists speak, they often speak, um, about their, the, you know, their Christian heroes, the Christian kings. Oh yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's, you know, but, but, but the important thing, the most important to, thing to keep in mind and, and, you know, I, I think that it, it's something that can inspire seculars and pagans as well is that uh, you know, and it's something that, that I always enjoy telling atheists, which, you know, cause they say, oh, you know, there are fewer Christians now in America than there were before. And I, I always say, hey, we only need 11.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think Lenin said a similar thing. He looked around a room, probably a little bar room or a coffee shop or something like that and said, there are 12 of us. The world is ours. And I I despise Lenin, think he was a terribly evil man, but I have to admire that kind of attitude that he he definitely believed in the validity of his cause and uh when people talk about the um uh shrinking American demographics and the uh, white de- white demographics in America I do point out that when my family, my father's family arrived here in Jamestown, we were a tiny minority on the continent, right? At that point Things do change, and one of the things that history teaches us is that it's full of unexpected changes. That said, I mean, we do we do have certain expectations and hopes and predictions. Um, what do you think? I mean, we've already touched on some of these things. Are, are are you fundamentally optimistic, though? Do you think that Western civilization is going to survive, or do you think it will be destroyed? And if it is going to survive, what kind of conservatives do we need uh, to to preserve it?
0: I think it's ultimately going to survive, but I think that we're going into a long period of war. I think we're going into a long period, not a dark ages, but just I think that the political entities that we know, many of them are going to break up. And I think that we're going to see tremendous movement of peoples as the the formerly homogenous nations that are now heterogeneous are going to become homogenous again. And I th- and I think that that process is going to be as unpleasant for pretty much everybody um, as it was the the previous times around.
1: Yeah, I mean, we really have two choices: we have the Yugoslavia model, or we have the Czech and Slovak velvet divorce. And I'm afraid that the left and its conservative shadows are not going to go for the velvet divorce. We're going to have to go for the the long bloody. Process of going from homogeneous societies back to homogeneous societies again, just like communism. They said was this long, bloody, terrible transition between capitalism and capitalism.
0: Right. Well, well, the thing, the thing is that um, the models that I usually use are <laughs> it's either going to be the Spanish model or the Bosnian model, the Serbian model.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, neither one of them are are, are particularly uh, fun. Or desirable, yeah. But, but that's really the, the 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 order of magnitude that we're talking about. We're talking about continent. We're talking about continental level stuff. We're not talking about national stuff, right? And, and so that's where, you know, that's where in the states I think it's a bit more of a tr- a, a problem because you've got not only is there greater diversity, and not only are the are the demographics uh, much much worse, but there's a, it's, it's all mixed up. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, there's Liberians here and Arabs there and Somalians, uh, Somalis, you know, right next door. And then there's, you know, a formerly, a, a white, formerly Polish neighborhood. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. And so I'll, there's going to have to be a lot more movement mm-hmm. than, than there has to be in Europe. And so, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's um it's definitely going to be interesting but uh uh hopefully hopefully in all of it people of every race will attempt to you know f- retain some level of decency and humanity throughout you know that would be my hope um you know i don't want i don't want uh you know i i i played a, i was actually elected the captain of a mostly nigerian football team a few years ago mhm Um, You know, I don't wish any anything bad to happen to those guys. I I I do think that in the long run, you know, they should be back in Nigeria. Right. And if if push comes to shove, you know, that that's ultimately where they belong. But that doesn't mean that I wish them any harm. You know, I I want things to go well for them, but I want them to go well for them in their own countries rather than, you know, so that um, there's not you know, like you said, the the velvet divorce is to be infinitely preferred
1: to the violent one. Right, right. And I, I totally agree with that attitude. I mean, that's, that's simply the decent human attitude to take. And it makes me so angry. It makes me so angry that the political establishments will not allow that to happen. Manuel Valls in in France just, just said. You know, his party, of course, is doing everything they can to keep the Front National from winning any of these regional elections by basically bowing out and, and telling their voters to vote for the Sarkozy's party. He's saying that if the Front National wins, it could mean civil war in France. These people... <sighs> Don't want to go quietly. They they don't want to fight fair. Uh, the Republicans who are you know in the United States are talking about a, uh, a contested convention. If Donald Trump gets uh, most of the delegates, they're not going to fight fair. They're not going to play fair. They're not going to go quietly. And they're just creating a situation where uh, because what they advocate cannot work, it's just going to create a terrible, bloody explosion in the end, and I wish these these fools, you know, would wake up and listen to reason, but when have you read in a book of history, the line and then they listened to reason, and everything worked out well, I mean, I've read a lot of history, and I don't find much many, many chapters in history that end that way.
0: No, but, you know, the, I mean, obviously there's going to be some level of force involved, but, you know, there's certainly no, there's certainly many, many examples of, um, you know, some Colonel, uh, deciding that the civilian government has gone too far and instituting change. Um, and so, so there's plenty of, there's plenty of possibilities in that regard. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of crazier possibilities now that the, you know, with uh, science and technology changing and so forth. And so, but I, I think that, if those of us who believe, if, if those of us who are nationalists want to continue to get our message across to people, it needs to be one that is, you know, always based on, on the truth. And it also needs to be one that is fundamentally based in human decency. And, you know, that none of the whole, um, you know, none of the whole Nazi rhetoric about you know, fleas and, and, and intermention and all that kind of crap. I mean, you know, the, the people of of Papua New Guinea, the, 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 tribes of the American Southwest, um, the Nigerians, whatever, they're all human. They're all worthy of human respect. The fact that, that, you know, you don't want to necessarily live in their society or live in a society that becomes their society, that's not based in hate. That's, it's not based on it's not even based on necessarily dislike. The only way that you're going to convince people of this is that, look, these are your two alternatives, yeah. you know, which which is more humane to help people go back to where they belong or to allow this to turn into some horrific third world war.
1: Exactly. Uh, I completely agree with that. And uh, one of the, the approaches that I try and take with my own writing is is, is to emphasize, look, you know, the, this totalitarianism, imperialism, genocide, all this scary Hollywood stuff, uh, all this bad stuff from uh, the Second World War and before. That's what we're trying to avoid. Exactly. You know, if if people listen to reason, we can avoid this. I mean, the Second World War could have been avoided if people had been more reasonable, you know, rather than, you know, partitioning countries that were ethnically homogeneous and patching together countries that were powder kegs of uh, instability. You know, Versailles, Versailles let, lit the fuse for the Second World War, and it was entirely predictable and entirely preventable and that's the truth about the next world war. It's entirely predictable, entirely preventable, and yet we're standing uh, at the brink of it, I think, uh, and it's a—it's uh, very sobering to see what's coming. Vox, this has been a great conversation. We've been going on for 90 minutes or so, so I think we're reaching the limits of uh, the average uh, attention span here, but I hope that we'll have opportunities to discuss these ideas further and who knows in two months you might have another book out
0: <laughs> <laughs> who knows it's possible well <laughs> thanks thanks very much i appreciate it and i will uh, look forward to seeing your uh, your review of it soon